I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. This November 8th, Massachusetts voters will have a rare opportunity to weigh in directly on their state's charter school policy. In particular, ballot question two would lift the state's cap on charters to allow for up to a dozen new schools to open each year. So what do we know about the performance of Massachusetts charters so far? And what are the implications of that evidence for the choice voters are facing? I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and my guest today is Sarah Cahotis, Assistant Professor of Education at Teachers College Columbia University and the co-author with Sue Donarski of a new piece on the Ednext blog entitled Massachusetts Charter Cap Holds Back Disadvantaged Students. Sarah and Sue's piece is appearing in Education Next as part of a new partnership between the journal and Evidence Speaks, a weekly series of reports on education policy from the Brookings Institution. Sarah, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. So as I biked through Newton and Watertown on my way into Harvard Square this morning, I counted nearly a dozen yard signs urging me to vote no on question two. And I thought this was striking because I first of all, didn't see a single sign concerning any other election, even the race for the presidency. But secondly, my understanding is that this question has no implications whatsoever for the rate of charter expansion in suburban areas. Is that right? And what exactly would a yes vote on question two do? Sure. Um, So right now in Massachusetts, both the number of overall charter schools in the state and the percentage of funding in any given district is capped. So if you are in a school district that has not reached the district funding percentage cap, which for most districts is 9% of the school's fund, a charter school can open there. Of course, that is pending the state's authorization and approval and somebody proposing that there be a charter school there. Uh, There is a a small caveat on that. Uh, The state as a whole says that the first two charters in any given year needs to go to a low-performing school district. But assuming that has happened, a charter school could open anywhere along your bike route uh, that there was an interested organization that wanted to open a charter school. Uh, As far as I know, uh, nothing would stop that from happening now, and nothing would stop that after a potential change in the law due to the ballot question. And so we're really talking about whether charters should be able to expand in some of the state's large urban districts like Boston, Lowell, Lawrence, Springfield. Are those the ones that are at their local funding cap? That's correct. So in 2010, uh, the state passed a law that increased the cap in the lowest performing districts in the state, the 10% of the lowest performing districts in the state, that allowed that funding cap to increase to 18% of the district's fund instead of 9% of the district's funding. And so um, the districts that are now bumping up against the cap are the districts in urban areas where more and more students are going to charter schools. And those are the ones that this policy would de facto affect because those are the ones that are being constrained by the current law. And now the performance of charter schools in Massachusetts is something you've been studying for virtually all of your career as an education researcher, as I understand it, all the way back since 2007. So... Can you tell me a little bit about first how you've gone about conducting this research and then we'll get into what exactly you found and how it speaks to this question? 
Sure. So charter schools in Massachusetts and anywhere in the country uh, have something that is particularly appealing to social scientists, while it might not be at all appealing to parents and families and students. And that is, if more students want to attend a charter school than there are open seats in that school, the school is by law required to hold a lottery. So everybody signs up who's interested, there's a day of the lottery, and sometimes they do it with an Excel spreadsheet, sometimes they do it like bingo, sometimes it's the local parish priest that's drawing the name, uh, all sorts of ways to run the lottery, but it's random who gets in uh, once students have applied. And why is that useful for a researcher? So, so folks like me then can compare the students who applied to the school and got in to the students who applied to the school and didn't get in. And if we're worried when we're making comparisons between charter schools and traditional public schools that the types of families that apply to charters and go to charters are a different kind of family, maybe they're more interested in uh, education, maybe they're motivated to seek out different options, or maybe they are um, anti whatever everybody else is doing. Who knows what the differences could be, we're, say, we're looking at the group of students and their families who have made the affirmative decision to apply and are comparing between those that got in and those that didn't. So while this group might be different from the overall district as a whole, and later I can talk about who it is who applies to charters and, and how that has changed over time, uh, within the group of applicants, this lottery is totally random, and when we compare outcomes between the two groups, we know that any differences are due to not something that happened beforehand, not a difference in background characteristic or home language or something like that, but a difference in the schooling experience that happened after the point of the lottery. So what have we learned about Massachusetts charter schools um, from the work you and others have done? And I guess it's really uh, hard to talk about Massachusetts charter schools in general. Really, there are two answers to that question, I guess. Right. Um, so uh, as, as you're alluding to, Marty, uh, in the urban areas of Massachusetts, so Boston in particular is where we've done the most of our studies, but also Lawrence, Lynn, other urban areas, we found that charter schools have large, statistically significant positive effects on students' test scores, both math and English, and also on other outcomes that many people care about and perhaps care about more than MCAS scores, outcomes like SAT scores, AP scores, and in my mind, very importantly, going to a four-year college. On the other hand, outside of those urban areas in suburban and rural Massachusetts, we've found as a whole uh, charter schools tend to have no and in some cases even negative impacts on test scores for students in those areas. And so this seems to be actually quite consistent with what we've seen in other research on charter schools nationally, but maybe an even more extreme version where the urban schools seem to be particularly effective relative to the alternatives available to families, but this pattern of mixed performance in suburban areas uh, really seems to hold true in, uh, in Massachusetts in particular. That is definitely true in Massachusetts, and uh, there is a national study of, of charter schools also using the lottery method, looking at middle schools through the U.S. Department of Education, and they again found this mixed finding where uh, charters that tended to do well were located in urban areas, and charters that were doing poorly were not located in those areas. But also something important to point out is that the gains that we're seeing in our urban charter schools in Massachusetts are quite large. They are um, 
in terms of standard deviations around a quarter to a third of a standard deviation per year in math and in, uh, for English around 15% of a standard deviation. So help uh, us understand what exactly I, that means. I, I agree that that's probably the most striking thing about this research when you all first started publishing your findings. I remember people commenting over and over that they'd never seen annual effect size as large as what are reported in these studies of Boston charters. No, I'm, I'm jaded for future work because this is my first project, my first big project, and so now whenever I don't see anything as large, I'm disappointed. No, it's not true. There are, there are many things out there that also have um, statistically significant impacts on students, but the magnitudes of what we're finding in Boston are very large. So uh, a standard deviation is a way of measuring the spread of test scores, and a, a sort of an anchoring point is that the black-white test score gap in the U.S. is around uh, three quarters or 0.8 standard deviations, depending on which study that you're looking at. So what we're finding is, in math at least, uh, three years of enrollment in a charter school has the potential to close that black-white achievement gap, which is very large. And you can also think about comparing it to other educational interventions that uh, people are interested in. So for instance, uh, the Tennessee Star experiment is a famous experiment that reduced class size in Tennessee. And so we are finding, for instance, that the one-year effects of attending a Boston charter school on test scores are about the same magnitude as a four-year effect of uh, having a smaller class size. Now, some people's response to that finding, and in particular the size of the effects that you were documenting, is that this must be an example of test score inflation, that these charters are really just prepping students for then the MCAS, now the PARC or MCAS 2.0, and that really this is a misleading gauge of their uh, impact on what students can actually uh, do. How have you been looking at that aspect of the issue? Sure. Uh, so there are two ways that we look at that. So one is looking deeper into the test scores themselves, so looking at whether or not charter schools have gains of similar size on all aspects of the test. So you could imagine a world in which it was about teaching to the test, then it would make more sense to spend more time on topics and uh, standards, Massachusetts state standards that are covered more frequently on the test. I've done some research where I found that's not the case. Instead, we see that gains in uh, the Boston charters are about the same size, both for frequently tested topics and less frequently tested topics, for standards that show up every single year on the test, and for standards that only show up every few years on the test. So that's one way to look of it, uh, at it. It's not uh, disproving that any teaching of the test has happened, but we find no evidence that it has happened. Another way to look at it is to look at the outcomes that we're seeing on non-test score outcomes. So we see the gains on the MCAS, but we also are seeing uh, impacts on the SAT and the AP, and then again in terms of going to college. And so uh, if these gains were all about uh, the test scores, the MCAS, we wouldn't necessarily expect them to translate to alternative exams like the SAT or the AP, or to outcomes that we think are close to the outcomes that we care about in the real world, whether somebody is a 
successful, happy, healthy adult, and many think that going to college and going to a four-year college in particular is getting somebody on that trajectory. One of the interesting things about the studies of these non-test outcomes that you've done is that the picture is a little more nuanced than you might have expected across the board. As I understand it, the students who are enrolled as a result of a lottery into a charter are actually no more likely to graduate after four years and in fact a little bit less likely to graduate from high school on time. How does that sort of gel with the very positive picture you're telling overall? Yeah, so we did find that uh, students in these charter schools are less likely to graduate high school on time, though by the time we get to a five-year graduation uh, rate, the, it's exactly on par with the traditional public schools. And uh, we don't know for sure, but what we think is happening is it just takes a little bit more time to fit in a rigorous high school curriculum for students who, in many cases, are coming to the school uh, behind grade level. and uh, Many of the charter schools do require uh, an AP in order to graduate and sometimes multiple AP tests. And for them, uh, it takes uh, an additional year to get there. Anecdotally, I've talked to folks who work at these schools and they say that um, students are aware of this possibility and they start working with students in their sophomore year to make sure they understand what they need to do in order to graduate and whether or not that might take longer. So it's not a surprise that uh, you wouldn't necessarily finish in four years, uh, but it is a, a difference between the charters and the traditional schools. One of the points you make in the article with Sue is that, you know, there are lots of cases where we're trying to make decisions about an education policy issue where the evidence that we have available to us doesn't line up particularly well with exactly the, the decision we are being asked to make, or methodologically it's not particularly strong enough to inform that decision. And, you know, you really argue that this is not one of those times. You write, we have exactly the research we need to judge whether charter schools should be permitted to expand in Massachusetts. And I think that's right when it comes to the impact charter schools are having on the students admitted to them. But it seems to me that other people, or that some people may have other concerns uh, or questions about the implications of allowing charters to expand further. Uh, so for example, about the impact on district finances as funds flow out of school districts to charter schools. Is that something you've looked at at all or can speak to? So that's not something I have studied directly. Um, I don't do a lot of work on school finance, but I'm aware of the parameters of the law and the, the way the law works in Massachusetts is that the funding follows the student. And if a student is leaving traditional public schools and goes to a charter school, the funding is gonna follow that student. Uh, Massachusetts, uh, somewhat unusually, does have a provision to reimburse uh, districts for a period of transition uh, when they are losing students going to charters and um, though that is uh, it's a partially funded mandate right now so it's not completely funded um, and in my mind it's fair for funding to follow students if you're educating a kid you should get the dollars to educate that kid in terms of the effects in the long term on the district I don't know the answer to that. I wish I had a, a crystal ball that I could shake and tell you the future. Um, I, unfortunately, I don't. In my mind, though, I'm interested in solving the problem that we have now, which is a 
underachievement, uh, low college-going rates, um, uh, racial and ethnic achievement gaps, uh, of, and we know that charter schools can bring a solution to bear on that now. And in the future, we're not quite sure what's going to happen with district schools. There are certainly places that have reached an equilibrium between traditional public schools and charter schools, and that may very well happen in Boston and places like that. And, uh, but personally, my take is I'd rather solve that problem once we get there as, and not sacrifice the outcomes for students now. Especially in a situation where, as you know, we have more than 10,000 students on wait lists for charter schools, which means that they're in a position to expand to meet demand uh, right. right now. And, and fundamentally, there are parents that want this opportunity for their kid, and I don't want to be the person standing in the way of that. And I think that the research shows that this opportunity, a charter school in an urban area in Massachusetts, can be extremely beneficial for students. So I hear you, Sarah, advising based on your research and your consideration of the issue a yes vote on question two. But I also have heard you say that elsewhere that this would not have been your preferred approach to handling the issue of charter expansion in Massachusetts. Why not? So all the time we have to make decisions between less perfect alternatives. And personally, if I was voting in Massachusetts now, I would vote yes. Anybody else who's thinking about their vote, I would say I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but I encourage you to read the evidence and make a decision for yourself. I thought Massachusetts had a great policy innovation in 2010 where they said we're going to expand the, ch uh, the charter cap, but not everywhere, only in the districts uh, where we see the lowest performance. And we're also going to um, have a uh, law that says those that are going to have permission to expand need to be proven providers. And, and uh, that is a Massachusetts-specific term that uh, Massachusetts has created to say if you are expanding in one of these cities where we've given permission for uh, funding to go beyond that 9% cap to an 18% cap, then you need to show that you've demonstrated success in the past with your school or with your school model. And that is not saying uh, we're only limiting to national charter providers. It could be a school in, uh, in Massachusetts already, so a homegrown school. It could be uh, people on the board uh, being involved in organizations that have shown that success. Or it could be part of a national network like KIPP. We, we, have, uh, we had a charter school, KIPP Lynn, in Boston. That was the only KIPP school in Massachusetts for a very long time. And then recently, we've also had a KIPP Boston and open. And uh, in my mind, this is targeting the cap lift to the areas that benefit from it the most. And then it also has this uh, beneficial idea that we are only going to let charters expand that have a proven track record. In but my mind, there's lottery-based evidence out there that uh, the state could choose to use to determine who is a proven provider. In actuality, they have their own rubric and way of deciding that. But I think in many cases that uh, replicating uh, successful programs shows promise for uh, uh, creating change on a larger scale. And of course, that approach to expanding the charter cap through the legislature is what 
advocates had been pursuing for a number of yeah. years uh, with the strong support of Governor Charlie Baker, but the legislature hadn't been willing to do so. It will be interesting if the ballot question is successful, and I should say that uh, it's not at all clear that that is likely to be the case right now. Um, it will be interesting to see if the legislature might then go in and think about applying that approach uh, going forward. And then the other interesting wrinkle is, I'm sure you've read in the Boston Globe, there's also a lawsuit pending around uh, charter schools and uh, uh, whether or not um, capping charter schools is unconstitutional due to the provisions in the Massachusetts state constitution around access to education. So if the legislature won't do it, and if the voters don't do it, then maybe we can ask the courts to help lift the cap. Uh, unknown. We'll <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us about your research today, and um, good luck with the continued work. All right. Thank you so much for having me, Marty. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners, and more listeners find us. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.